Welcome to the Front Office Exchange, where we take a look at the careers of executives and rising stars within the sports business. Now, here's your host, Jake Failing. Welcome to Episode 7 of the Front Office Exchange Podcast. Our guest today is Joe Favorito. He's a podcaster, a professor, an author, and an all-around media and marketing guru. And tens of thousands of sports business professionals subscribe to his sports marketing and PR pros LinkedIn group. I'm a member, and I'm sure you are too if you're listening. Uh, Before we get started, I want to thank everyone who listened to the first six episodes uh, of the podcast, which I pushed live last week. It was great to hear from people in the industry that I haven't heard from in years. Uh, The response has been fantastic. So I just want to thank everyone who's listened, downloaded, shared, and I continue to encourage you uh, to to keep doing that down the road. All right, now let's get into our guest today with Joe. Uh, I met Joe back in 2008 when he and I were charged with just the small task of trying to get baseball back in the Olympics and publicize those efforts. I was running uh, media and PR for USA Baseball at the time, and while I thought I knew a thing or two about PR, uh, Joe ran circles around me. (laughs) Watching him work with the national media while crafting our message was really impressive. I learned a lot from him over the two years that we worked together. Uh, Joe hasn't always been a go-to strategic media consultant, however. Um, He was a rising star in the sports PR game right out of school. And even as a young SID, it was clear that he understood the power of networking and building relationships. He talks a lot about that during our conversation. He quickly rose to become the youngest head of PR in the NBA with the 76ers, and that led to senior media roles with the USTA, uh, the New York Knicks, among other organizations. Joe has seen it all in sports marketing and PR at this point, and despite being busy with clients, he still finds time to pour back into the industry by pumping out his newsletter and by teaching a class and leading the CUSS podcast for the Columbia University Sports Management Program, where he is now in his 11th year on the faculty. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, may I introduce Father Knickerbocker himself, Joe Favorito. All right, Joe Favorito, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks, Jake. Uh, so before we get into your career, um, let's start with what you're working on now. I, I think that uh, as we walk through, people will be surprised to hear uh, the background in the MBA and in college athletics because so many people, I think, know you from your sports marketing and PR pros newsletter, uh, the podcast through Columbia, your teaching at Columbia, things like that. So uh, if you're able to tell me everything you have going on, I'd love to hear it. It's interesting because September's a little bit of a transition month, coming off some Olympic work and some other things, and, and uh, it's a little bit of a hiatus because I'm waiting for some properties like Nickelodeon to come back. Um, but the coolest thing I have right now is Christie's in the middle of October will be doing uh, what will probably be the second largest and probably most diverse auction of baseball memorabilia in history. So I've been working with them on the storytelling of, of that. And it's everything from, um, you know, 130 years worth of memorabilia from signed letters by Connie Mack to Joe Jackson's bat to the Negro Leagues to um, all the way up to today with one of the last bats that Derek Jeter used. So so the, the storytelling around that and how this collection kind of came together is taken up, you know, a good part of my time. But um, like I said, there's always kind of room for two or three other things that kind of come along, whether they're in the digital space. Uh, you know, now the kind of gambling space is growing, which is interesting to me. Um, so, you know, it's always kind of a, you know, a 
take one from one side of the, the column and try and put it in the other side. Right. So you and I, just to go back a little bit, because you mentioned baseball and your ties with baseball have been, you know, many times over the years. Mm -hmm. But you and I met back in, I believe it was 07 or early 08 as we were trying to get baseball back in the Olympics. And I know that was also a pivotal time for you and your career. Uh, Isn't that about the time when you went out on your own and and started consulting and social media and marketing and branding and things like that? Yeah, it was... um... I actually got involved with baseball right after, I think it was right after the um, the Beijing Olympics, because um, I wasn't involved when when Harvey Schiller went to to Sydney, but I know that they went to um, Beijing. But I, I got involved early in that fall, and I had just probably been about six or seven months in at that point. Actually, maybe even less, because uh, the mixed martial arts property that I was working on went under. Um, in the summer of that year. So I was sold to the UFC. So I was kind of flowing along and I, I think it was probably October, November um, when I got involved with, with the IBAF and trying to get baseball back in the Olympics and, you know, spend obviously uh, three years kind of going back and forth on that project is kind of a primary focus, but you know, there were, there were, you know, a half a dozen to a dozen other things that kind of came along in that period. And that's, you know, you get thrown in the unemployment pool and, uh, you say, uh, you know, you're either going to sink or swim and, you know, a couple of people throw you some life jackets and you float along and eventually you get out of the water. Right. So uh, is it safe to say that you were ahead of your time with MMA? We were. It's funny. Uh, a friend of mine says, you know, pioneers always think that, that, you know, they're the best ones. But in reality, they get shot with the most arrows. So uh, we were definitely ahead of our time in terms of what we were trying to do. And, and it, it, it it um, gets to the point now where we still have some of the fighters that we had in the International Fight League fighting in the UFC, so uh, and doing pretty wow. well still. So, right. um, you know, we we took a different approach than the UFC did at that point. It was a little less edgy, a little bit more mainstream, uh, but we did a lot of the things that the UFC went on to amplify with their platform, like we had the first live broadcast uh, on television. We had deals with companies like tops. We actually did a relationship with USA wrestling, which led me to some of my, some of my Olympic work before they would even consider working with the UFC. Um, you know, we had young fighters, a lot of young fighters with great stories that we kind of brought along. And like I said, a half a dozen of them are still fighting in, uh, in the UFC, which, you know, shows that we were, we were doing something right. A little, uh, XFL about now you see all those camera angles that they, Mm -hmm. Uh, debuted then you see that I mean it's commonplace now uh, so y- you exit International Fight League and you're now a consultant and just like you said you know you're thrown into the unemployment pool but if someone grabbed you then and said you know at some point you are going to get into Broadway shows mm-hmm. you're going to be doing memorabilia collectibles Movies, auctions books uh, yep. what would you have said <laughs> um, again I've I've never looked at it where I knew where my next job was going to come from so it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, I, I worked in tennis for seven years and, you know, had never really picked up a racket. When I went to the NBA for the Sixers the first time, you know, I really wasn't a fan of college basketball. It was things that you learn along the way and good stories. So I don't know if I would have ever guessed that we would have done all the things that we've done uh, in the last eight years. Uh, but it's uh, certainly you never know where it's going to go. And it's it's always interesting, whether it's drag racing or drone racing or um, you know, helping people build their brands or not-for-profits or, um, you know, some of the movies and some of the plays that I've worked on. So it's, it's you know, it certainly is a unique mixed bag of track tricks, I guess. 
Did you just say drag racing or mm-hmm. drone racing? Both. That's a thing, yeah. right? Oh, they're, they're not synonymous. They're actually two different things. So, yes. No, I know, but drone racing yep. is now it's a big thing. deal. I think I saw Right. Yep. Unreal. All right. So let's go back to Fordham. So you, you graduate from Fordham. You get into um, assistant athletic director at Iona. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're in college athletics. Walk us through a little bit of your career then, because then you ended up back at Fordham. And I know, you know, I see you post things on social media about Fordham. I know you get a lot of uh, passion there um, and ties still. So, but if you could just walk us through from there, and then obviously uh, when you ended up with the Knicks and after that. Well, it actually. Um, it goes a lot further back than that because I really kind of knew I wanted to do something in sports when I was in high school. Um, and I was lucky enough to be around some pretty good teams. Um, when I was in high school, we won the state basketball championship. Um, and that kind of led me to knowing that I wanted to do something, not knowing what it was for the good reason of, you know, this was just before ESPN. There was no talk radio really to kind of speak of the internet obviously didn't exist. So, um, you know, I went to Fordham, um, really kind of at the behest of my parents. My father said, you know, go and, you know, study journalism and communications, but, you know, do some stuff in economics in case you have a business background. Um, and I went there and I was kind of lucky because I fell into a time at a 50,000 watt radio station on campus, WFUV, um, where we were at a time again, before talk radio and before ESPN or ESPN had just started then. Um, where we were kind of out in the field. And, you know, the other interesting thing that happened at that point was I was the last class who the drinking age in New York State was 19, was 18. So, you know, oh you, um, but it was interesting because you'd get out and, you know, we would go and drink in bars in the city with people like Thomas Wolf and Mike Lupica. And, wow. um, you know, you kind of learn pieces of the business that you can only learn from doing things like that. But, um so I'm on this radio station where, you know, we're out covering games and we're broadcasting our own games. And Fordham was very good in basketball at that time. And I was involved in the basketball program. And at one point, probably my junior year, you know, I started to realize that not only could we do all these things, and this was all fun and interesting, but eventually you had to figure out what you were going to do for a job. So there was a thing called Sports Phone, which no one listening to this will ever know what it was. But before <laughs> talk radio, you the only way you would get your scores, you would dial a number, 976-1313 from anywhere in the country, and you'd hear every score updated every 15 minutes. And through the network that you built at, at people who were working there, and it was like, you know... Um, I'm trying to think of guys who are around, you know, Jim Memolo's now on, on um, Sirius MLB radio and Barry Landers and Kenny Albert and Bob Papa. Um, you know, so, so you'd just be hanging out in these rooms with these people, um, you know, waiting for the University of Hawaii football games to be over so you could go home at 2 o'clock in the morning. Um, but that was kind of one of the first forays. But also at the same time, people told me about internships. So... Uh, I was lucky enough through the basketball program at Fordham where I was a manager to have someone call and say, hey, you know, you should go talk to NBC about an internship. And I went down and there was a guy named Kevin Monahan who interviewed me and he said, you know, we you can't really do this here because you need to be here kind of full time. Um, but you, you know, there's a guy named Mike Cohen who probably would be interested in having you. Mike used to be the head of PR for NBC Sports had branched out on his own. So why don't you go see him? And I did. And Mike Cohen really kind of became the person who showed me how the business was going to grow. Uh, and kind of, again, was one of the first ones to throw me in the pool to see what I could do. So, you know, we would work on some of his great projects for like NFL films. And he did a lot of boxing. 
so, you know, I worked the Hearns-Hagler fight, the first Hearns-Hagler fight, and, you know, he had tennis. So I would go and get Kay McEnroe, John McEnroe's mother, flowers for the Shearson-Lehman Brothers Tournament of Champions in Forest Hills. And, um, you know, he showed me how to write. He showed me kind of what a good story was. He taught me how to listen. Uh, and he gave me an internship and eventually hired me kind of part-time with some other people who have kind of grown in the industry. Um, and he gave me my first start. And, you know, every six months, Mike would call me up and say, this job is open, go do this, or, you know, go do this or add this on or go call Dick Young and ask him about, uh, you know, tell him about something that's going on at Fordham or, you know, wow. something like that would come along. And, you know, that's how I got to Iona was I was working at Sports Phone and uh, doing. And that probably is a lot like what you're doing now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but it was, I mean, you had to be in one place. And again, you don't, at that age, you know, people will do, a lot of athletes now do this letter to my former self, which I think is kind of ridiculous that, that so many people are doing it. But, um, right, right. you know, but, you know, if you knew now what you knew then, you know, you wouldn't be as kind of smart ass or, you know, think you know a lot more than you actually do. And you probably would have learned a lot more. But, you know, lo and behold, he, you know, he calls me up one day and, said that um, Iona, the sports information director at Iona, had just quit. His name was Tom Dodato, and it was October, two weeks before the basketball season was supposed to start, and he said, you should go work for Iona. So I went up there, I met with Rick Mazzuto, the athletic director, and he hired me, uh, and I started there, and, um, you know, things just kind of took off. I, You know, at 22, I was the youngest SID in the country, and our first game was at the University of North Carolina, and I remember sitting down with Rick Brewer, who was the, uh, the sports sure. information director at the time, and just saying, what should I be doing? And he was very helpful. Um, and That's the Tar Heel in him. Tar Heel, you know yeah, that. right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it kind of grew from there. But I was there for, you know, at Iona for a year. It was uh, Pat Kennedy's last year. Uh, and we had a really interesting staff who, to this day, have gone on to other places. You know, Tim Welsh and Dave McGarrity's the women's basketball coach at Army. And uh, we had a guy who's passed away named Kenny Williamson who was – you know, one of the Knicks' best scouts down the line. But we also, uh, you know, had come right off the Jim Valvano era at Iona, and he was at NC State at that point. Uh, and Pat left at the end of the year to go to Florida State and really kind of grow his career. But, you know, the, the people that you met then and the stories that came out then started to help you kind of build a business. So I was there for right. a year. I went to Monmouth College in New Jersey for a year at kind of Mike's behest and said, you know, go do this stuff. Um, because, um, you know, they had just gone division one. So, you know, I'm probably one of the few people who lived down in the Jersey shore for the winter and commuted to Brooklyn for the summer. But, um, yeah. okay. so, you know, I was there for a year, um, helping them grow their program. And he called again and said, you know, this thing called sports channels, uh, is looking for some help in not just PR, but marketing and you should go there. And so I moved back to my house. Uh, in Brooklyn, living with my parents, and I commuted to Long Island for two and a half years and really helped learn the television business and launch what eventually became the regional networks um, that we see today. Um, and, you know, did some things like, you know, we took um, the Yankee games off free TV at that point and put them on cable for the first time. But, you know, again, through the people you meet and the connections you build, it was pretty interesting. Um, had a great time there for a year and a half. And again, he calls me and said, there are openings at both Manhattan, where he had kind of grown as the sports information director, and Fordham. Why don't you talk to both, and let's go figure out which one you're going to take. Um, and I did, and I um, talked to both, and Manhattan was kind of dragging their feet. And 
I'll never forget, I called Mike on a Monday morning. It was probably like late summer. Actually, I know exactly when it was. It was in September. So it was the September of the Seoul Olympics, which was 2000. Uh, I have to go back and do the math. 2000, 2000 Olympics in Seoul. Um, and the Seoul Olympics were going on. And he said, I was going back and forth to Sports Channel. He's like, you know, I'm going to this. And one of his big things was the scouts. He was big on getting the baseball scouts into the Hall of Fame. Uh, right. and they had a, a softball game that day. He said, I'm going to the softball game. You know, we'll figure it out tonight. Call me today uh, after you get home from work at like 6 o'clock. So go to work at Sports Channel, come home, dial Mike's number. Um, it rings. Uh, I, uh, a kid answers the phone. I said, hi, is Mike there? And I heard nothing on the other end of the line. And he said, hold on. And this woman gets on the phone and said, Mike died of a heart attack two hours ago. Oh, my God. So I was kind of thrown in and didn't know what to do. And I'll never forget um, going to his funeral um, during the Seoul Olympics and hearing the stories again of, you know, people like Marty Glickman and Michael Weissman, who was the founder of really kind of, of sports television at NBC with Rune Arledge. Um, and there, it was a room probably that had 200 people in it that could have had 2000 if the Seoul Olympics weren't going on at that point. Right. Um, right. and, but again, you kind of learn life lessons right away. And, um, you know, the two people that he were working with, well, actually one person he was working with at that point was Brian Harris, who's still a dear friend of mine. He said, you know, I think Mike would want you to go to Fordham. And I did, I went back to Fordham and I was there for five and a half years. Um, and again, all these kind of crazy things happen when you're there, you know, because you're listening and you're looking for good storytelling. So, you know, we had a pitcher who pitched underhand. We had a deaf basketball player. We had, um, you know, all these kind of unique stories and we knew how to get coverage out of them. Um, so lo and behold, um, you know, I'm there for about five years. You know, we have all these interesting things happen. I get married. Um, and I get a call one day from Brian McIntyre, who's the head of PR at the NBA, and said, you know, I was talking to Mike Breen. And Mike, I went to, Mike and I went to school together, along with many uh, broadcasters who are now pretty prominent. Um, and he said, you know, I keep flipping through the newspaper, and I always see this stuff about Fordham. And the Philadelphia 76ers are looking for a PR director. Would you be interested in talking to them? So got on a train. It was in June. Uh, I got married in May, took the train down to Philadelphia, met with Harold Katz, the owner of the Sixers in the basement of Veterans Stadium, which is where the offices were at that point. They had just traded Charles Barkley and drafted Sean Bradley. Again, not a great time to get involved. Um, but went home and um, didn't hear from them over the summer. In September, I get a call from Jerry Ryan, who was running their business operations, and said, Harold wants to talk to you. Can you come back down? I go back down. I meet with them again. Uh, and Harold Katz turns to me. He goes, you know, you do all this thing, these things for 21 sports. Do you think you could do it for 15 basketball players? And I'm like, uh, I think so. Yeah, And um, I became, you know, again, at that point, I was 29. So I was the youngest head of PR for an NBA team at that point. Um, and who did you report into? I reported to Jerry Ryan. At that point, Jim Lynham was the general manager. Freddie Carter right. was the head basketball coach. Um, so it was really kind of Jimmy Lynham on the basketball side and Jerry Ryan on the business side. Wow. So, uh, okay. so you're there for four years. Three years. And Three then... Yeah, and then uh, into tennis. So mm -hmm. was that a promotional opportunity? Nope. Was that I got the, fired. It, so, oh, okay. So everybody, uh, the team was sold. Uh, Pat Croce bought the team with Ed Snyder. Uh, and Pat, who you know everybody thought was a great guy, was actually had kind of some strange quirks in his personality. And one of the things was, uh, you know, you you do this kind of you know Sun Tzu thing where you walk in and you pick the first person you see and you just lop them off. And I was one of the first persons that he saw and 
got rid of me. And so, you know, we had just had a baby. So uh, here I am unemployed. But through the people that you met and the network that you built, what happens is um, one of my graduate assistants at Fordham was a guy named Mark Beal. And Mark was working for a PR firm, which Alan, which uh, Mark, uh, Mike Cohen's wife had sold to a gentleman named Alan Taylor. Um, and he called me up and said, you know, the Women's Tennis Association is looking for somebody, um, you know, and I gave him your name. And himself, uh, Mark, and another guy named Peter Lands, who was working at the NBA at the time, um, both talked to Ann Worcester, who was the CEO of the WTA Tour, and we went back and forth on some interviews. But they were located in Connecticut. So it actually allowed me – so I got fired in April. Um, this was in May. So it actually allowed us to move eventually back to the house in, in Rockland County outside of New York City. We never sold. We rented out. So I moved back there. Um commuted to Connecticut for three years, and again, ending up in interesting places at the wrong times. Right before um, I got the job at the WTA, Sally Jenkins had a story on the cover of um, Sports Illustrated, Is Tennis Dead in the United States? So you're kind of oh, starting wow. at the bottom. Right. But right. again, through storytelling, it kind of worked say, out. I it's a great opportunity for you. Yeah, well, you know, you never know at that point. And again, I was never a tennis fan. You know, I'd gone to the Open many times, but had never really kind of played tennis. So go to the WTA. Our offices are right across the street from the WWE, which was kind of interesting, in Stanford, Connecticut, right off I-95. My first event is uh, the French Open that year. So I go to Fr the French Open with Anne. Um, we're sitting in this conference room uh, in Paris, and sitting next to me is Billie Jean King. And around the table are, you know, are, um, Anna Kornikova's 15 at that point, Serena Williams's 15, Venus is 16. Steffi Graf had just come back from an injury. Monica Sellis had just come back from a pretty famous stabbing. Um, Martina Hingis, uh, Conchita Martinez, Gigi Fernandez, all sitting around. And Billie Jean King turns to me and goes, this is Joe. We hired him to turn around the WTA. So, wow. So, um, I again, we had a legal pad and I had some people who had worked for me, uh, were just starting to work for me at that point. And we started to let them tell their stories and... and um, kind of, you know, let us start making notes about what we could do. So they go around the table and Conchita Martinez talks about how she loves wine. And, you know, probably seven months later, she was on the cover of Wine Spectator magazine. And, you know, yeah, Martina sure. Hingis stands up and says, I want to be the first female athlete on the cover of GQ. And 18 months later, Martina Hingis was the first female athlete ever on the cover of GQ. And it was, you know, a lot of it, a little bit of luck, a lot, a little bit of thinking, and obviously some great tennis playing because she became the youngest you know, number one ever in the history of women's tennis at 18. Um, but, you know, we had those stories play out for three and a half years. Uh, and then a job opened, was created at the U.S. Tennis Association right when um, they were getting ready to move to what's now Arthur Ashe Stadium and, right. you know, take really what was a two-week event and make it into a, you know, multi-month activation business um, you know, work with the professional tours more that it had never existed before. So, uh, and then, went there. and then I know you were there for two years and mm -hmm. then was it just a matter of when the Knicks call you answer the phone? I mean, I, I know that that era well, you were with them 01 to 06, yeah. obviously nine 11 happened in 01. Yeah. So, uh, and that was Isaiah as well, right? No, it that, was way before. So it was actually, I started in a position, Jeff Van Gundy was the head coach. Uh, okay. Steve Mills was the president of the team, and Nuka Brown-Sanders was running the marketing. And the reason I was brought in is because the business side and the basketball side didn't get along. And I had known Jeff, 
Jeff's brother Stan was the assistant basketball coach at Fordham when I worked there. Uh-huh. Um, so I'd known Jeff along the way. Um, but, you know, we had built all this stuff up at the USTA. Um, you know, I never really thought I would leave tennis. Um, and this was September 2001. And we had um, – we always did something big for the winners of the U.S. Open. And um, – that year was Leighton Hewitt and Venus won, I think. And I think it was Venus. Venus beat Serena um, in the first night final, which was one of the other innovations that we had. So um, September 9th, 2001, Leighton Hewitt wins the men. Uh, Serena, Venus won the women the night before, and they get to pick where they want to go to do their photo shoot the next day. And Venus didn't really want to do a lot of stuff. I think it was Venus. It was either Venus or Serena. And they didn't want to do a lot of stuff. We were just going to go to the Chase headquarters and do some stuff. And we were meeting with the people at Octagon, and Leighton Hewitt said, I want to go to Windows on the World. So we had never done that before. Hmm. So uh, when you think about September 10th, 2001, at 8.35 in the morning, we were supposed to be doing a photo shoot on top of the World Trade Center. And when you think about everything that happened 24 hours later, it was kind of interesting. Um, But what happens is he oversleeps. We never go there. We go to the Brooklyn Bridge. But, you know, when you kind of think of where we were going to be, uh, 24 hours That's later. That's insane. Was, sure, uh, my goodness. You know, again, the stuff that happens. Right. But, but anyway, just to make a long story short, the last thing that was supposed to happen was two weeks later, the U.S. was supposed to play India and Davis Cup in Winston-Salem, as a matter of fact. Uh, okay. You know, obviously, September 11th happens. That gets postponed. But it ends up being the first international sporting event on U.S. soil after September 11th. It was in October. Uh, and at that point, I had already been talking to the Knicks um, and that was kind of my swan song at, at the USTA. I go to the Knicks. First game there is Michael Jordan's first game back in the NBA with the Washington Wizards. Um, oh, so it kind of starts okay. from there. And, you know, it was – but, again, it was an interesting time to be there. Went through – you know, we made the playoffs once, uh, got swept by the Nets. You know, so nine years in the NBA, and I never saw one playoff win. But because of that, you get to make a lot of chicken salad, and we built some pretty cool things. I got to work with, you know – Larry Brown and Lenny Wilkins and Isaiah and Herb Williams, Don Chaney, um, Scott Layden, you know, it kind of goes on and on. We retired Patrick Ewing's number, which was, you know, recorded as one of the top 10 greatest events in the history of Madison Square Garden. So, you know, we did a lot of stuff, not a lot of success on the basketball court, but, you know, some really interesting stories that came out of that. So, so I'm about to compare you to Michael Strahan, if you can handle this. So I, I always joke that there's this generation that doesn't know that Michael Strahan was just an amazing football player. They know him now as this television star. Right. And, you know, I almost look at your career like that, that you built this really progressive career in public relations. And, you know, since that time with the Knicks and the International Fight League, you've built almost an even more successful consultancy. Mm-hmm. And part of that is this, again, the sports marketing and PR pros uh, newsletter. Um, what Are you now on your 10th year at Columbia? Is, yeah, this is actually the 11th year. I, I actually, again, yeah. but we started that program. John Ginzali, who was the, um, the editor-in-chief of Sports Business Journal, was working at Columbia with a guy named Lucas Rubin, starting this program. And he said, there's two things. One is we want to have you come teach, but two, nobody has a book. So why don't you write a book? Uh, and he set me up with a right, publisher. Right. Well, that was going to be book. my next point. Right. So, so, next, so you've written this book, mm-hmm. and what? I guess what was that process like, and how has that evolved with the rise of digital? Did that help you launch that newsletter? It helped uh, a lot of ways. One of the things that I learned from a friend of mine who I went to school with, who's in publishing, is as soon as you put a book down, it's dated. 
So he said, you should start a blog. So I've done that, you know, as kind of the companion to the book, you know, for as long as we've had the book. So that's since 2007. Um, and again, the, the, the idea of the book was not me talking about, you know, this is the way you do things. It's let's just go tell some good stories. And that's really what the book is. It's, you know, best practices of, you know, what Kevin Byrne said to, to, um, um, who's the linebacker for the, um, Ray Lewis when he came out of court, you know, and how he handled that. And, you know, all these other kind of unique stories, you know, what it was like for my friend Meredith Geisler, the first day on her job as an intern at what was Advantage International at that point, uh, where they said, uh, you know, she walked into the office and said, you have to go to this guy's house right now because he died last night and his mom is waiting for you. And it ended up being Len Bias's mother. So, Um, you know, so it's all these kind of interesting stories and kind of how you do X, Y, and Z, uh, and you know, everything that happened. And that's really what the book is. And it's been updated once it's got to be updated again, hopefully next year. Um, but you know, it it was the first one out there and, you know, I don't know of another one that's out there, you know, that talks about this kind of niche industry like it does, you know? Sure. So you, you you did the book and and then this, again, the newsletter reminds me, we talked uh, in a past episode to J.W. Cannon, who helps run um, hashtag SB chat. And, you know, the way he talked about that, where it was, I want to give back to the sports business community. Again, having known you for several years, I know that that's how you feel about your newsletter as well. So how has that developed and what is the demo like? I I know that you're big into analytics and you look at that, uh, you know, Aside from the people being from all over the world, mm-hmm. is this people coming out of college and or people looking to make a change in their career kind of midway through? It's everybody. Um, and it's totally done by word of mouth. I don't do anything to really to promote it. Uh, we're over 37,000 members now, um, probably 26 or 27 countries. And it's everybody from high school students looking to get involved and figure out what they want to do to, you know, the CEO of Formula One. Um, and, you know, I would say not a week goes by where I, I'm in a meeting and somebody says, oh, I get your newsletter. And I have no idea how they got on the list, but they're there somehow. I, I curate it all myself. Um, I know everyone who's in. I, I keep certain groups out. You know, I don't like uh, I don't let like uh, financial guys in, you know, because, you know, there's no you know, I don't want people to go and mine the list, but I own the list. So, um, you know, and it's just kind of interesting best practices and it helps me kind of curate the week. And, 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 you know, I do a lot of it by just kind of bookmarking things on Twitter. Um, and, you know, it's some great jobs and, you know, some other best practices. And, you know, people have said, why don't you monetize it? Why don't you do this? Well, I guess I could if someone wants to show me how to do it and invest their time into it. I've put as much time into it as I'm going to. So say, come on, people. I mean, Joe's giving you his time. Why can't somebody out? That's what this is, Joe. This is a call for someone to help you monetize it. Yeah, well, I mean, people come along. I would say not a month goes by where somebody says, oh, I've sure. got an idea as to how you can do this better. And I'm like, okay, do you want to do it? So, right. um, you know, everybody said, you know, if you had a quarter of the list and you charged everybody a dollar, you think about all the money you'd make off of it. Well, it's, everything's not about money. So, um, you know, and it keeps helps keep me fresh and relevant. And uh, it helps a lot of people out, which is probably the most important thing. Well, I know you're a busy, man. You got to run, but a couple more things, and sure. then we'll go. So, again, with you being so closely tied to Columbia, uh, you see a lot just in terms of the students that are coming out, and you know maybe the the troubles that they're having getting a job, or what you're seeing that's successful. Um, I guess two parts: what are you seeing, and two, what advice do you give to those students? Well, I think there's plenty of jobs. Uh, I think the question is, 
you know, do you want to pay the dues and do you have the skill set to help get those jobs? I think, you know, this is an industry, yes, where there are, you know, thousands upon thousands of people who want to get involved and only hundreds who can get jobs. But, you know, there's plenty of places to work. I, I think, that, you know, there's a few things. One is I think you have to have the ability to write and, and converse both in the spoken word and the written word. And by written word, I mean everything from, you know, cogent letters to, you know, an effective use of social media. I think if you speak a second language other than English, you're ahead of 85% of the people that are out there. And I think the third thing is you can't go into it saying, you know, this is my passion. This is the ultimate job I want to get. Because like I said, I've, I've never really known, you know, where my next job or my next client is going to come from. It, It all at this point, a lot of it is inbound, but, um, you know, it's really kind of through the network and, you know, you really can't emphasize enough the, the value of sincere networking and the value of kind of building, you know, your context so that you can show people in, in a very short span, uh, time, time span, what you can do for them, not, not what you want to do, but what can you do for them to make their jobs easier? Um, and then the last thing is, I think you got to be a good person. I think that there's a lot of jerks out there. Uh, and this is a, you know, Scott Layden, who was one of my bosses, said, you know, the, the sports business is about two blocks long. And, you know, I believe that. I think you see the same people on the way up that you do on the way down. Uh, and if you treat people well, you'd be surprised how many people will come out and try and help you when you need something. So if you're a jerk, even if, you know, and I, I know many people may or may not be jerks, but... You know, they, they, when they hold the hammer and they're working at, you know, big beer company or big, you know, computer company or a big credit card company and they reach a certain age and they get let go, it's amazing when it goes the other way as to who helps them and who doesn't. And a lot of that is tied to how they treated people along the way, not because they had the hammer and they were able to do all these great things and spend big budgets, but because they did the right thing with a lot of people. Got it. What is Joe Favorito? I guess fill in the blank. Joe Favorito's favorite slash what he thinks is the most valuable conference to attend. What social media handle or person do you like to follow? Those two questions. Hmm. Uh, conference all depends on um, what your interest is. I think you know South by Southwest has built out a pretty interesting platform for sports. Um, Synopsis does some nice events, you know, and then there's you know, SBJ has a plethora of events, you know, but that's kind of on the business side, you know, whether it's Sports Media Technology Summit, whether it's World Congress of Sports, whether it's college athletics, um, you know, and then you've got, you know, some niche conferences that, that are not really sports, but you can learn a lot of things, MIT being one of them, you know, the Sloan Analytics Conference. Um, you know, there's a geek, um, a geek Wire conference now in Seattle that I've heard is really good. Um, you know, the, for college students, the University of Michigan does a phenomenal sports business conference in November every year. Um, so, you know, it all kind of varies as to what you get out of it. You know, I, I try, try to look at things as to where have where would I hear something differently that I haven't heard from somewhere else. And it, it necessarily is very rarely, not necessarily a sports. It could be technology, entertainment, media. You know, I think those things are much more valuable. You'll learn a lot more than that from that been sitting in the same kind of sports business conferences time and time again. All right. And where can everybody find you online? Your blog is your name, right? JoeFavorito.com. Yep. Uh, people can sign up for the newsletter there. I'm at Joe Fav on Twitter. Um, Joe Fav Nix on um, 
Instagram and Snapchat. Uh, you know, I'm on LinkedIn, obviously, um, and you know, on Facebook as well. So. Great. Well, you talk a little bit about the people that have helped you along the way. And you, when you're not a jerk, it's amazing how much uh, help that you can get. And, you know, I just want to say you've you've been a big help for me over the last, gosh, almost decade, Joe, which is crazy when we were trying to get baseball back in the Olympics. So uh, on behalf of me, obviously, but also everyone else that subscribes to your newsletter, thanks for what you do. Um, and I really appreciate you joining me today. Thanks, Jake. Thanks for listening to the Front Office Exchange, where you hear about the careers of some of the leading executives in sports business. Visit us at frontofficeexchange.com, on Facebook, at Front Office Exchange, and on Twitter, at Front Office E-X-C-H, to access past episodes, show notes, and much, much more. 